You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Preaching through Luke. And Kayla already read our passage today. It's on the woman who kind of bursts into the room. And she's known in town. People know who it is. And she's known as a sinner. Uh, We don't know what that means. Traditionally, people have assumed, given the language that's there, that she likely was a prostitute in town. I don't know if that's just a sexist assumption or if it's an accurate assumption. But it is the traditional assumption that's been held for a long time. Um, So you have this woman who very much has probably not been welcomed into kind of religious-like circles or spaces with holy people, bursts into the room, and then just pulls out this ointment, this perfume, and starts to bathe Jesus' feet in it. And then maybe she feels inappropriate, maybe she just, like, who, who knows all the emotions that are going through? This is a woman, if she was a prostitute, that's been filled with trauma, has been filled with negative touch for so long, and now she's taking what touch that she can to redeem it, and she's washing Jesus' feet with her hair, and it's just this incredible, sobering moment. And the church has different responses when these kind of moments happen, where we can ostracize the people, and that's what the Pharisees do. They, they see Jesus, they're like, this guy's supposed to be a prophet, right? This guy's supposed to hear the Holy Spirit, know God, and supposed to respond as God would respond. Well, this woman's a sinner. So this Jesus guy, this prophet guy, should be like, what are you doing, woman? Like, don't touch me, you are unclean. Can you imagine a Jesus like that? Kind of feels sickly when you try. But that's what the Pharisees are looking for. Push her off. Shove her off. She's breaking social protocols. She's barged into this room. She doesn't belong in this place. She certainly doesn't belong touching you. If you're a holy man, what are you doing? And Jesus, despite the scandal that's in front of him, despite the rumors that will go around about the prostitute that came and washed that holy guy's feet and touched him and cried in this weird kind of sobering yet intimate moment happening behind the closed doors of that house over there where the Pharisees watch. Like Jesus is in the midst of scandal. He could be ostracized at any point in time, and yet he does nothing except let the woman continue this sobering, intimate moment where she is not crossing sexual lines, but certainly rumors will go around that maybe that happened. The Pharisees will easily take this moment and use it as fuel. Oh, I ate dinner with Jesus once. Do you know what happened? But Jesus instead sits there and considers it a wonderful thing. In one of the Gospels, it's going to be talked about how, don't you know that this woman's like preparing me for my burial? Uh, often perfumes and things like that. That was a, a sign of, of burial or the things that were done to keep bodies fresh. And Jesus saw it as like this moment. That's what this woman's doing right now. Wherever she goes, she's going to be remembered throughout history. Some of you, you're not going to be remembered, but this woman right here, this sinner woman in town, wherever the gospel goes, the story about her will go with it. That's a pretty intense moment. 
Jesus even in Luke's gospel turns it into a parable. Hey, you know, this woman's been forgiven a lot. Who do you think loves better? The woman who's been forgiven a lot or you guys, you Pharisees, who seem to have it all together and don't feel like you need much to be forgiven for? Jesus turns it around on them. Jesus supports the woman, despite if he ends up canceled for what's happening. And we live in a culture right now where we are afraid of of being canceled, where we are afraid of touch, where we literally set up rules to ensure that we don't end up in a situation where people could gossip about it. The Billy Graham rule is a classic one, that he could never be in the same place with a woman alone lest the rumors get out or something like that. In other words, give privacy to 50% of the population, but the other 50% can be treated differently. But Jesus, despite the rumors, just kind of serves the people in front of him. And it doesn't matter if it happens in front of other people. The rumors can still start. I know one pastor who, a woman had had an affair in his congregation, and she just came to church just weeping. She was so broken about what she had done. She, she didn't know what to do, and she's just weeping. And that pastor in that moment hugged her and held her the whole time. And so, of course, the rumors started. Oh, did she have an affair with the pastor? He tried to offer that good touch of Jesus. And I understand there's bad touch, too. I'm not saying that touch is always a good thing. Especially if you've been through trauma, you know better than anyone. Touch can either be the most painful thing in existence or the most healing thing in existence. In this case, he stepped into that moment. And embraced her in the scandal and the rumors. But if we want to reach people, we're going to find ourselves walking into a mess. There's a recent movie that came out. Christian movies, I know, are usually not that great. I'm aware. But this one was okay. Uh, I have my critiques, but it was still all right. The Frasier one. Frasier. I mean, Kelsey Grammer one. I mean, uh, um, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you know. Jesus Revolution. Uh, this Jesus Revolution movement they showed back in the day, kind of like the start of Japuza type stuff, the Jesus People USA type stuff, where they started to reach hippies, and the church was not sure what they wanted to do with this hippie crowd, and they had to really adapt because the way that the hippies were coming in felt scandalous to them. Now they're reaching a different culture that didn't mesh with their holy space, that didn't mesh with their pastor, that didn't seem like the right kind of blend. And they had to learn that in order to create one of the greatest revivals that America has seen, they had to learn to embrace the scandal. They had to understand that people across America was going to judge their church. Oh, they're hanging out with those kinds of people. But when you do those kinds of things, Jesus has a way of kind of intersecting into that pain and doing amazing things. I'll read an interesting story to you um, from Deborah Hirsch, and I'll read quite a bit of it for you. It's out of her introduction in her book, Redeeming Sex, and she just kind of tells her story of how she got saved. This is what the church had to do to embrace the scandal to lead her and her family and friends to Christ. She says, George was my drug dealer. He was also the sound engineer in a band I hung out with. All in all, he was a pretty wild character who, who in his calmer moments saw himself as a seeker, a philosopher of sorts, 
and that he would get stoned, stare at the stars, and get all deep and spiritual. I didn't take George's seeking all that seriously, given the pursuit of truth didn't extend to his drug dealing or ripping off his friends. George got picked up by the police for a stack of unpaid parking tickets and was sent to two weeks in a local jail. Keeping on with his quest for truth, he took along his mother's big Greek Orthodox family Bible. I can't imagine what the police thought when he walked in with it. It probably weighed 10 pounds. You know what happens next. George begins reading the big Bible, and the Holy Spirit falls on him. He's born again right there in the local lockup. When the police released George 10 days later, he was bursting at the seams, ready to tell the world about his newfound faith. His brother, John, picked him up from jail and gave his life to Christ before they even arrived home. The two then banded together, Bibles under one arm and a copy of Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth under the other. It was the 1980s, after all. And they went out in hot pursuit of new converts. They compiled a list of all the people they sold drugs to and called it their evangelistic hit list. They would pray for each person and then catch up with them to tell them about Jesus. I was on the hit list, as were a number of my friends, including my sister Sharon and my dearest friend Mark. My journey of faith didn't actually begin when George shared the gospel with me. God had been working on my case for a long time. I just hadn't realized it. Like George, I was a seeker, and in the weeks before coming to Jesus, I had sensed something was in the wind. I kept telling my friend Jason that my answer was just around the corner. He thought I was, talking, he thought I was taking too many drugs, and maybe I was. But I was expectant. Never thinking for a moment that my answer, like George's, would also be Jesus. When Jesus came into my life, everything changed. All those old cliches you hear, being lost and then found, being blind and then seeing, they applied to me. I encountered God in such a dramatic way that I knew my life would never be the same. Within a very short time, both Sharon and Mark also gave their lives to Jesus. The three of us were living with a bunch of others in a big community house, and many of us were identifying as gay. God set up residence among a group of people who had little clue about him or the journey of faith entails. Within a period of about six months, over 50 people, friends and contacts, had come to know Jesus, but not everyone who lived with us was thrilled about our newfound faith. There was much debate and sometimes outright hostility. At times, it felt like the two kingdoms were warring against one another, and they were, but God's Spirit was at work, and a new community of Jesus followers was being formed. Originally intended to indulge our hedonistic lifestyles, our home became a place for all sorts of people seeking refuge, healing, and personal transformation. But we didn't have a church. George had found God in prison. We had no real connection with other believers in the outside world. So I look back now, I laugh, thinking how easily we could have turned into some weird cult. But intuitively, we knew we needed to go to church and meet other Christians. One night, Sharon and Mark stumbled on a cute old church building with the name Christian Chapel above the doors. Seeking a light shining from, seeing a light shining from a side room, they knocked tentatively on the door. An older, willowy-looking man appeared. He was dressed in a white shirt and tie and introduced himself as Pat, the pastor of the church. Pat explained that they were in the middle of a prayer meeting and invited Sharon and Mark to join. They nervously declined, but said they would be back Sunday morning with their friends. A few days later, about 12 of us trundled along to the church. As we made our way down the center aisle to the front of that little Christian chapel, I'm not sure who was more shocked, the church members or us. 
Talk about a clash of cultures. The men were wearing suits and the ladies had on hats and gloves. We were dressed like we had just rolled out of bed after a hard night of partying. I still had my pajamas on. We were a ragtag bunch of ex-prostitutes, drug dealers, gays, punks, and goths. They were a fundamentalist church filled with conservative-looking old folk. Yet despite the obvious differences between us and them, we managed to stay. Those older folk had no clue what to do with us, but they did know how to love and how to pray. They somehow managed to reach across the cultural divide to lovingly embrace us and include us in the bigger church family. The earlier years of our discipleship were worked out in the context of that little church. Not all of those church folk embraced us easily, of course. There was some grumbling going on behind the scenes. Pat eventually let us in on a little secret. Given that the youth group was in their 60s, that Wednesday night prayer meeting that Sharon and Mark stumbled on had been set up specifically to pray that God would bring young people into their church. Pat would constantly remind the grumblers that we were the answer to their prayers, and it wasn't his fault that they weren't specific enough with God about the type of young people they wanted. Pat really was one amazing grace-filled pastor. It was nothing fazed him. He came to our home dressed in his suit and tie every Wednesday to lead a Bible study. Nothing too radical about that, except that the Bible was being taught around our kitchen table. Drugs just might be brought and sold in the living room. People could be in bed with one another upstairs, and it was highly likely that the crazy Greek brothers, John and George, would be noisily casting out demons in the backyard. Pat used to tell us that we were the apples of his eye. He never took a moralistic, tongue-clucking approach with us. He knew God was at work in us, and he didn't want to mess with that. He knew the Holy Spirit would eventually sort some things out. And despite how he might have personally felt about our crazy lifestyles and wild household, he remained true. I can still see him sitting at our table with his big Schofield Bible and that little twinkle in his eye. While he did eventually ditch his suit coat, he always wore his characteristic shirt and tie. Many of us eventually left the Christian chapel to go into full-time ministry, a wonderful testament to a church that was willing to go beyond their own comfort zones to embrace a strange people from a strange land. In many ways, Pat embodies the thesis of this book. His ability to see the bigger picture of God's redemptive purpose and priorities meant he didn't get judgmental or controlling, nor did he push us beyond what we were ready to own and live. He modeled Jesus in his open-hearted posture toward those who were seen as sexually scandalous, a posture that is sorely needed within the church at any time and place. If you like that, um, I've read a surprising amount of books about Christian books about sex. Redeeming sex is toward the top of my list. I would suggest it from Deborah Hirsch. But that right there is an example of this pastor and his church walking right into a scandalous situation and trying to figure out how to be Jesus, how to be Jesus with the prostitute that's washing his feet, how to be the church that's going to have the rumors going around, that people are going to start considering them as a cult or start thinking that they are doing all the wrong kinds of things or that I would do church differently if I was in charge. Jesus is with those kinds of people, that the Pharisees are like, I would do religion differently, I would do church differently, but Jesus continues to minister to the person in front of them. And Jesus sees this person, despite her life falling apart, despite whatever sinful thing she is involved in, Jesus sees them as their faith making them well. Now, that woman is not going to walk out the door and suddenly be 
like nailing 100% of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. The Holy Spirit works on us over time to get us to the point where we might possibly, possibly, if we've spent a lot of time with God, get to the point where we no longer sin intentionally. We'll always mess up. But maybe we could let the Holy Spirit get us to that point if we were really listening to him over decades and decades. That woman is not going to be in that place when she walks out the door, but Jesus sees her faith bringing her to salvation in that moment. Jesus sees this woman experiencing the kingdom of heaven. We don't know what she's going to fall right into when she gets out that door. And so often we want people to get saved, get it right, and we want that to be one moment. You went into a church building, the Holy Spirit called you forward, you got on your knees, and you were saved. But that's not usually how it works. And some of our greatest heroes are examples of that. C.S. Lewis didn't want to be saved. (laughs) He calls himself the most reluctant convert because eventually he truly believed, yeah, Jesus is God. I guess I have, if I believe that, I need to follow him. Like he didn't want to. He was reluctant about it. But he talks about one day I got on a bus. I don't know when I became a Christian. All I know is when I got off that bus, I was a Christian and I was following Jesus reluctantly. And yet the Holy Spirit chiseled him to go on to make a great movement of reaching people in a whole kind of dimension that the church had yet to reach within a philosophical uh, and educational current world um, kind of way. It takes time. Nobody gets it right. And if you want to minister, if, if that if we might put any kind of even just theological stock over just dream stock, and that dream I had about a stream going down our road, that we might go out and possibly be fishers of, of people out of that. If we, if we want to consider that, then we're going to bring in people that don't have it right. And you know what? That's a good place to be. Because a lot of times the people don't, who don't have it right, it's just easier to work with them because they're open about everything. In one of the classes that I just had, uh, one of our assignments was to address our youth group and try to figure out kind of some of the stuff that was going on in there. Like, are they dealing with issues like drug use and all these other things? And I thought back to our, our youth group when I first started here. And like, you didn't have to ask, you just knew. Everybody was very open about the stuff that they were going through. They grew up in families where that kind of stuff was normal. And that normalcy had taught them, like, I don't need to hide this. This is just how life goes. And though we as Christians would look at that and be like, wow, you got a lot of chaos going here, and we want to speak into that. Like, they didn't have to hide it. We just knew it. And how much pain do we go through in the church? Because we hide. Because we feel like we got to fit in that social circle. Because we got to feel like we got to conform to the church and, and nobody can catch any blemish in us because then they might see our sin and point it out. That's not how the church is called to act. And we've gone pretty far distances to act that way. If I remember right, one of, my, uh, one of the pastors I worked for when he first got saved, and I might be making this story up, but I think it's true. And if it's not true, I can imagine it being true somewhere. <laughs> uh, he, he went to church early after he got saved, and he was wearing jeans, and the pastor called him out from, from the stage. This is the Lord's house. We dress well for him here. What are you doing? 
Can you imagine Jesus looking to this woman washing his feet? She's a million steps past wearing the wrong clothes. If I remember right, we had, uh, and maybe I'm just making up a bunch of stories at this point. (laughs) I don't think I am. Um, But we, I know another pastor who they had reached a, a bunch of local strippers. And that created an interesting dynamic in the church when they weren't uh, wearing the clothes that you would expect you would wear to church. And yet the church had to learn to be patient and not just point the finger, but just try to find ways until they would kind of find their way forward. And again, these last two stories, I'm going off of very vague memories here. But what would it be for you? What would it be for you? Who, who is it that would walk in this building And you feel like you would have to point the finger at them and say, you don't belong here. Because the answer should be no one. If there is someone who does a certain kind of work, if there is someone of a certain kind of race, someone of a certain kind of lifestyle, someone who fits in a box that you don't like, that were to walk in this room... How can you embody the scandalous Jesus who's willing to have his feet washed by a prostitute with her hair, with her tears, in front of Pharisees who are going to judge him despite the rumors that are going to go around? How can you love that person best? That's one thing I love about this church. You guys have always done a wonderful job at just loving anybody who walks through these doors. And let's keep it that way. And should we ever find someone among us who does not keep it that way, that's your chance to say, hey, this isn't the way we treat our friends. Let us love and let us love well. So Jesus, we come to you this morning knowing that uh, we all have natural inclinations built up in us to think that if A, B, C, D, E, F, G kind of a person were to walk into our space, we would instantly have a moment where we're like, "Uh uh-uh, not here. Or maybe we would run into such a person, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, out in the world. And we instantly have our guard up where we're immediately thinking, oh, I don't think I like this. Oh, I've I've already um, completely analyzed this person and put them in all kinds of boxes. God's studies have shown us that um, we judge people within seconds of seeing their face. We haven't talked to them. We haven't met them. We just instantly put up guards against the kind of people that we meet and see. We don't want to live by our brains that way. We want to live by your Holy Spirit, that we might see deeper than what we see in front of us and we don't want to play it stupid we know that there are plenty of people out there that we we um we can put up borders to create safety when we think that we're in danger but we don't ever want the borders we put up to get between the love that god wants to give so jesus teach us to embody you teach us to live in those discomforts That we would be people of healing touch, not bad touch. That we would be people that embrace 
the scandal and the rumors if it means that we're loving well. We give ourselves to you, and we ask for your guidance, for you are wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.